welcome to this Sunday message, Sunday the 22nd of May, 2022. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Help us to rightly divide it. Once again, we invite you, Holy Spirit, the teacher, to come and teach us. Inspire the words that are spoken and inspire our minds to grasp what it is that you are saying. May this word become part of our lives and produce abundant fruit for the sake of your kingdom. In Yeshua's name, Amen. This message is more of a teaching than anything else. Sometimes that is necessary. It's more the impartation of information. Yet I trust that through the Holy Spirit it will be inspirational all the same. I want to talk about Christians and our finances, very important subject. Let's just go as a way of beginning to Psalm 35, 27. It reads there, Psalm 35, verse 27, Let them shout for joy and be glad, who favor my righteous cause, which I assume is all of us. And let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified who has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. Do you see that? The first thing to understand is God wants us to be prosperous. Prosperous in every way, not least of which is financially. The truth is, you and I are entitled to the blessings of Abraham through what Christ achieved on the cross of Calvary. And a great portion of that blessing is financial well-being. And as always, remember, God wants to bless us, not just for our sakes, but so that we can also in turn be a blessing to others. So let's just accept for a start that God wants us to be blessed. He delights in our prosperity. However, as with all these things, there are conditions, you see. Just because you and I might be Jolly old Christians, born again, spirit-filled even, talking in tongues does not mean that prosperity is automatic. The blessings of Abraham are conditional. Obviously, we appropriate them by faith, and that's a subject all on its own. But apart from faith, the angle I want to take right now is that there's just common knowledge that you and I as Christians need to have. Very often we are hindered from being blessed because of our ignorance. Perhaps we've never been taught, or having been taught, we might not have applied or understood. But anyway, the object of this teaching is to help us to understand. You see, God can only work with us with understanding. The devil's very different. He likes to just keep us confused. And as long as we are confused, you see, we are at a disadvantage. So, once again, this message is just to help us to understand these things. Now, Having thought about it and having listened to quite a bit of other teaching on the subject, I've come up with this concept that there are, generally speaking, please, this is generally speaking, I'm sure there are many more, but generally speaking, every time money leaves us, there's certain categories into which that transaction falls. All right? We're talking about when resources leave us for whatever reason, 
They are generally speaking. Once again, generally speaking, there might be many more. But generally speaking, seven categories into which these transactions fall. So the title of this message is Seven Transactions. All right. And what I'm trying to express is that each transaction has to be approached differently. There are, in a sense, different rules for every type of transaction. And you see, the problem comes is when you and I confuse these rules and we try to do one transaction on the terms of one of the others or we mix them up. And that's when the enemy can take advantage of us. And that's to a large extent why many, many Christians, I believe, are struggling with financial lack. It's very much like sport. You can't apply the rules of football if you are playing a game of rugby. As clever as you might think, in a game of football, if you pick up the ball, run to the end, and dive for a Brian Habana-style touchdown in the goalpost, you might think you're very clever, but everybody else will think you're pretty stupid. You see? Why? Different rules. Different game. I mean, every transaction has got different rules. And more importantly, behind each one is a different motivation. You see, we need to pick up the right motivation in each situation. And that's very important. Each transaction has a different outcome in mind. And to get the right outcome, we need to have the right motivation Understand what are the terms, what are the conditions that apply to that type of transaction. So I hope this will become clear as we go along. I've tried to cover the full spectrum of transactions in human life. And the very first one will be what you and I understand by just transactions in the marketplace, buying and selling. As you know, we are, we're in this world, although we're not of this world, but as long as we're in this world, we have to abide by the rules that apply here. One of those rules is, if you want to buy something, you have to pay for it. Seems quite obvious, but that's it. That is the rule. You see? And God's quite happy with that when you and I are doing transactions, worldly transactions. When we are busy with worldly transactions, there's a certain type of approach. The motivation is obviously to get a good deal, to be honest, and to be wise. Let's look at a scripture, Luke 16. And we're going to start from verse 8. Luke 16, well, the verse is verse 8 that we can look at, and then I'll just explain what happened beforehand, which most of us will probably know. Well, let me just explain the story, then we'll read Luke 16, verse 8. You will know the story of the unjust servant, as he's called. Here we have a man who's been in charge of his master's house, and for whatever reason, either laziness or incompetence, he's messed up. So the master decides, well, I have to get rid of this man. Let him go, so to speak. The servant contemplates the prospect and thinks, I don't want to beg, I don't want to work manually, I can't do that. So he comes up with a plan, all right? He comes up with a plan. And that plan is to go to all the people that owed the master money, and to make a deal, cut a deal with them. You see, and he would say, well, you owe eight, give me four, and I'll let you off. I'll write you off the books. You see, he could do that at that stage. And he did this, and his thinking was, well, 
if I do this for them, then when I haven't got a job, they'll take pity on me, you see. I've scratched their back, hopefully in the future. They'll scratch mine, sort of thing. Now, you might think that the master, when he found out about it, which he did, would be extremely angry and demand, obviously, that the servant rectifies wrong. But this is what the word says, and this is the Lord speaking. So the master commended, do you see that? Commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. Then he goes on to say, this is very interesting, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. Do you see that? The sons of this world more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. Basically, what he's saying is, to you and I as Christians, just because we are Christians doesn't mean that we must be ignorant, naive, foolish in dealing with the world. The Bible speaks of being as gentle as doves and wise as serpents. You see, and very often I think children of God are as gentle as serpents and as wise as doves. We're not supposed to be doff, as they say in Afrikaans. We're not supposed to be naive and foolish. We're supposed to be shrewd in the dealings with this world. Amen. In other words, get a good deal. Before you go into negotiation, find out the conditions. Don't just go and buy any car that comes your way. Do your research. You see, that's what it means to be shrewd. So when you do make a deal, when you do pay, you're getting value for your money. You see, being shrewd means being wise. In the supermarket, when it says, buy two and get three, and you just do it because it looks like a good deal, and don't consider what it is that you are buying, you end up like we have with enough spray and cook to last for the rest of our lives. Amen? Even though it's olive flavored. You see, if the goods are things that you use, go for the deal, you understand? But don't just be fooled by, oh, it's a cheap price, I'm going to buy it, but you never use it. You understand? Being wise means when a notice comes on your email to say that you've inherited four million pounds, please contact us and we'll negotiate how to go about releasing these funds from this great bank vault. Just delete the message. You know it's a scam. See, just be wise. Just be wise. Don't be led by the nose. Don't be foolish. God wants you and I as Christians to cut a good deal. All right? To cut a good deal. That is the world system. We need to play the world system on their terms. However, please note something. That doesn't give us the right to manipulate others and to swindle others. You see, all our dealings must be conducted above board and with absolute integrity. You see, being shrewd doesn't mean abusing other people. I'll share with you an example in my life which I think explains this very well. When we left Zimbabwe, I went to the craft market. I wanted to get a soapstone carving that I could take with as something to remember Zimbabwe by. I went to the market. I saw a very nice soapstone carving of an eagle and then I bargained with the vendor. However, 
I soon realized the man was at a disadvantage and obviously he had to feed himself or probably a family. He had to sell this thing. So I beat him right down. I think it was down to something like $80. Absolutely ridiculous when I think back of all the work that must have gone into that soapstone carving. Anyway, at that stage I was pretty immature in these things. And I left the marketplace with a big grin on my face, thinking I'd really got a good deal. However, something troubled me. What troubled me was the look on the man's face when he parted with his carving for that pittance. You see, I'd taken advantage of his situation. And I wasn't acting shrewdly. I was actually being abusive. And can I tell you, I believe that that carving brought with it a curse that followed us all the way down to South Africa and into the house that we eventually built. There was a place where I mounted this wonderful carving and somehow it exerted a negative influence, I believe, just looking back. What I'm trying to say is, you see, being shrewd doesn't mean swindling other people, taking advantage of their situation. It means operating in absolute integrity. So that means when the teller at a supermarket gives you more change than you should or undercharges for whatever reason and you realize that you go back and you put it right. Being shrewd isn't saying, oh, I scored because of their mistake. Another example of this is with our music team, we've got a amplifier and sometimes we put too much uh, sound through the thing and the thing, as Afrikaners say, it geblaas. So I took it to the music shop. I said, please, can you repair this very good Amplifier, and they said, sure, we'll do it for you. And they said, it'll cost you 500 Rand. I was quite happy with that. And I waited. And I waited. And I waited. Eventually, I phoned them. I said, please, what's happened? They said, we'll come back to you. They didn't. I went to the shop. I said, please, this has taken a bit longer than I anticipated. What's happened? The owner was there and the sales lady who I dealt with. And they found out they had it in the back room. But they neglected to let me know, and so the delay, see. Anyway, I said, okay, well, let me pay. And the owner said, no, 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 it's our mistake. You can go ahead. We don't want you to pay. I said to him, listen, I want to pay. I don't want my happiness to be based on somebody else's unhappiness. Now, you see, what I realized is that although he was saying to me, you don't have to pay, I'll understood very clearly the moment I was out of that shop, he would turn on the sales lady and say to her, listen, you made this mistake. Guess what's going to happen to your salary at the end of the month? I didn't want that to happen. We all make mistakes, you see. Now, I could have easily said, oh, well, this was a blessing from God, you see, and said, praise the Lord, the church is blessed. But you see, I realized that that wasn't the situation. That wasn't this particular transaction. This transaction was a business transaction. You understand? They'd given me a service and I wanted to pay. Had they, however, said to me, we know you from the church, we know that you're running a ministry, we want to bless you, then I would have said, praise the Lord, thank you, may the Lord bless you in return. You understand? It would have been... If they had said that, a completely different transaction, one which we're coming to later on. So please grasp this. When it comes to dealing with the world, our guidance is 
to be absolutely honest. People of integrity, people that can do a deal with us and know they haven't been swindled. Amen. They haven't been manipulated. We don't give them false information. We tell the truth about the car that we are selling. We say that it's been through 10 accidents and the chassis is a bit bent. <laughs> you understand? And the coat of paint that's on it hides a lot of sin. You see, that's the way to deal with people when it comes to the world. At the same time, however, we need to be shrewd and not just be a walkover that people take advantage of. Amen. And we can trust God for wisdom to get good deals. Wisdom to deal with people in a way that will, in a sense, result in a win-win situation. Both buyer and seller leave the transaction content. I hope we've grasped this. So those are the rules for dealing with the world. All right. Another transaction that takes place for us as humans living in this world is taxation. All right. Governments cannot survive unless the people pay tax. Harsh reality of life, two things you can't avoid. One day we die, we also are required to pay tax. Now please note, this is also a transaction in a sense on its own. And for us in a country where very often we see our tax money wasted, squandered, stolen, it's quite a difficult pill to swallow. But the truth is, that is the law, and we have to be law-abiding citizens. In Romans, Paul speaks about honoring the king. In other words, praying for the government, praying that there would be orderly government without which no society can survive. All right? And part of that orderly government is the finances needed to run the government, which means tax. The person who covers it in the Gospels is a man who himself was a tax gatherer. That is Matthew. All right. On two occasions, he speaks about this whole subject of taxation in dealing with the Lord or the Lord's dealing with it. Let's go to these two. I'd like us just quickly go to Matthew 22, 16 to 21. Let's think about it as this gospel written by the ex-tax gatherer. Chapter 22. 16 to 21. Sorry to labor us with such a dull subject, but we've got to cover these things. Amen. You see, the tendency is because we see the government squandering and wasting the money to justify us crooking the books, as it were. In accountancy business circles, they speak about the difference between tax evasion and tax avoidance. Tax evasion is where we deliberately swindle the government and don't pay the necessary tax. But we'll get there. Let's look at the scripture. Matthew twenty-two sixteen to 21. And they sent him their disciples, these are the Pharisees, with the Herodians, saying, now this is typical of people trying to capture him, you see, catch him. Teacher, you see, listen to the tone. We know that you are true and teach the way of God. Not that they listen to what he said anyway, but the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the persons of men. Then very subtly, tell us therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful 
to pay taxes to Caesar or not? You see, these are people that actually hated Caesar. They saw him as the oppressor, and they would do anything to undermine him. You see, the government of the day. But they even descended to the level where they used this whole law to catch the one that they were jealous of, you see. But Yeshua perceived their wickedness. Do you see that? He saw right through it. He saw right through the scheme and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Okay, straight to the point. Show me the tax money. You see? Very wise this. So they brought him a denarius. And he, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? He held it up. Obviously on it was a picture of Caesar. And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. You see that? His instruction to us is to render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Amen? Render to Caesar that which is his. Now you and I might say, well, what Caesar deserves you know, is a swift kick on the backside. But you see, we've got to forego that sentiment. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. In other words, pay your tax. Pay your tax. Now you see, once again, there are certain rules here. We have to be people of integrity. So we are not allowed to evade tax. All right? We can't swindle the books. We can't not declare things. That is not godly. God cannot bless us if we do that. No matter how we might justify ourselves by looking at the circumstances. However, please note, there's two things that we need to add to this. We also are required by God to be shrewd. Dealing with the world, we must be shrewd. And that's where tax avoidance comes in. There are certain rules the tax man has instituted which allow you and I to minimize our tax. It makes very good sense for you and I to know those rules and to operate in them to the maximum. In other words, be wise. Pay as little tax as is necessary. Amen? We're not dealing with a charity organization here. It's a completely different setup. This is the government. We deal with them on their terms so we can use every means by which we can legally avoid tax. And there are a lot of loopholes that can be taken, you see, to avoid tax. And that is what we must do. We must be shrewd about it, wise about it, not foolish. There's something else that we need to know. Please, and this is important, you see, because you and I as Christians are not meant to just be abused. Let's go to Matthew 17, 24 to 27. Once again, Matthew the tax collector must have been amazed by this. Matthew 17 from verse 24. All right, Matthew 17, verse 24. When they had come to Capernaum, those who received... The temple tax, okay, this is now Matthew, a tax collector, knew all about it. When they come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, Yes. And when he had come into the house, Yeshua anticipated him. He realized what was going on. Probably saw them outside saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth 
take customs or taxes from their sons or from strangers. Peter said to him, from strangers. Yeshua said to him, then the sons are free. What he was saying basically is, well, he was the temple in a sense. Don't pay tax to yourself. That's what he was saying. But then to appease these people, because he knew that they were trying to catch him once again. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. Now, I can just imagine Matthew, the tax collector, listening to this and his eyes just opening wide and his mouth just falling open. Whoever before went to the sea to catch a fish to pay tax. What are the chances of there being one fish in the whole Sea of Galilee that had money in its mouth? And what chances are there of of all those fish? You catch one and that happens to be the one with money in its mouth. You understand? It's impossible. Statistically, it's an impossibility. The point is that you and I, as children of God, faced with onerous taxes, can fully expect God to supply the means of paying that tax supernaturally. You see, we pay tax on that which we earn, not that which we catch in a fish's mouth. You understand? So those are the rules here. When it comes to paying tax, we are obliged to pay tax. However, once again, we must be wise on the one hand, pay as little as is legally possible, and on the other hand, expect God to supernaturally provide the means by which we can pay tax, which is very onerous, as we all know. All right, so let's go to the next area. And this might surprise you that I would speak about it, but it's theft. You see, theft. Money leaves us when somebody steals it from us. I mean, it's a transaction, not that we enter into it willingly by any means, but it does happen. All right? Now, once again, this has got its own set of rules. I know some people might regard taxation as theft, but it's different. All right? Let's look at what the Lord said. Let's go to Luke 6, verse 30. Please remember, the attitude of our heart is critical. You see? And if you and I can guard our hearts in these matters, God can do what only God can do. You see? And that's what we want. As children of God, we live in another realm compared to everybody else. Okay? Luke 6 verse 30 reads as follows. Give to everyone who asks of you, and from him who takes away your goods, do not take them back. Okay? Don't take them back. Don't want to somehow get them back. Now, that might sound very strange. It's very much like turning the other cheek. But you see, there's something here that you and I need to understand. The natural human reaction when we are swindled is to want to get hold of the person and to beat the living daylights out of them. That's our natural reaction. We get badly offended by it. Hard-earned money when it's stolen by somebody who's done nothing for it. It really, really upsets us. Now please, 
The word is not suggesting that we don't do anything, we don't report it to the police. You understand, we don't take the correct legal process. But what God's dealing with is our heart, you see. Remember the Bible says, vengeance is mine. God says, vengeance is mine. And can I remind us that to fall into the hands of the living God is a terrible thing. You understand? Now you see, if you and I want to wreak the vengeance ourselves, it prevents God from doing it. Amen? Once again, we're not suggesting that we don't take the necessary legal steps. We don't go to the charge office, lay a case, and leave it in the hands of the law, such as it is. We're not saying that. However, when you and I try to rectify the thing in our own strength, that's when we get it wrong. You see, and the basis of all of this is faith. God is able to provide, you see. If we understand that correctly, our goods do not have such a hold on us. I remember once, it's quite funny actually, we are a bit late with paying the school fees. We did pay them eventually, but the school sent us a summons, you see. And I wrote a letter, an email to them. I said, please, it's not necessary for you to issue a summons and to get a court order and to get the bailiff to come and, you know, look at our house. Just come and take what you want anyway, without the expense. Come and take it. Come and have a look. Take whatever you want. We owe you the money. Come and take what you can. Sell it and try and... I'm not stopping you, you see. You don't have to get a court order to do that. Well, they didn't reply. I don't think they grasped what was going on here. But you see, the attitude is, if somebody steals from us, not to get upset. Not to get, how shall I say, vengeful. See, because it's unforgiveness, really, that can creep into our heart. And as you and I know, that unforgiveness can kill us. The best approach is to say, let them have it. Let the law do its, follow its course, but we trust in God. He will undertake. Now, that doesn't mean to say that you and I haven't got any recourse and we must be weak Christians that just hand over our goods willingly to anybody who comes our way and takes it from us. No. No. You see, we have to realize something. Who is the real thief? You understand who is behind any theft that takes place you see it's the devil who comes to steal kill and destroy he is the thief and can i just say something although you and i must forgive and release the human agencies that doesn't mean to say that we have to be weak world and do nothing we have every right to reclaim what the devil has stolen not only what he has stolen but sevenfold amen Let's just look at Proverbs 6.31. Proverbs 6.31. This was a Levitical law. Right? If somebody was caught stealing, not only was he to be punished, but he was to repay. Right? He was to repay sevenfold. Let's just confirm that. Proverbs 6.31. It's very important to grasp this, you see. As Christians, we're not supposed to be weak and to be taken advantage of. You see? Let's just go from verse 30. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is starving. All right? The point is, sometimes you and I, when we are stolen from, do not understand the motive of the person who stole. You see? And I'm sure if you and I found out that that person was stealing something so that he could feed his family, it would make a lot of difference in our approach to them than if we realized that they were just doing it to buy drugs or something else like that. 
you see. And we don't know. Very often we have no idea. So you see, God is saying don't hold grudges or want to revenge yourself on the person. But the person behind it, we have every right as children of God to demand repayment. You see? So you see, people do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he's starving. Yet, when he is found, he must restore sevenfold. He may have to give up all the substance of his house. All right? The devil, if he steals from us, we can reclaim what is stolen sevenfold. And it works. We can demand that he repays us sevenfold. Now, please, once again, if we've been stolen from because of our stupidity, you understand? If we've said, okay, let's find out about this four million British pounds that I've inherited through some distant relative, and it comes through to give us your bank account details, you hand them over, give us everything that we need to know about you, you hand it over, and then they say, well, to release this money, we need 4,000 rand, and you send the 4,000 rand, and you never hear from them again. Well, that's your own stupidity, all right? And I think you just have to regard it as, as a saying of Afrikaans, school health and live with it. I mean, but if somebody has stolen from you, abusing our good nature, whatever, we can go to God and speak to the devil and require him to repay sevenfold. So I hope we grasp that. When you and I are stolen from, there are a set of rules that apply. All right? You understand? Separate from tax, we can't demand that the government repay us sevenfold. It would be very nice, but that's not how it works. Amen. All right, now, the last four are to do with the Christian and giving. The Bible has a lot to say about the Christian and his giving. We need to understand that there are different ways that you and I, as children of God, are to give. And every one of these ways has a different motive and a different purpose and a different set of rules, basically. All right. The first one is tithing. Okay. We all know about tithing and contentious subject, etc., etc. We're going to read the relevant scripture. But let me just say something. The motivation behind tithing is obedience. God puts rules in his word to test our obedience. And this is one of them. This is one of them. Let's just go to Malachi, the very well-known scripture. Malachi 3. All right. And please bear in mind, God doesn't want to steal from us. God wants to bless us. If we have that understanding firmly in our minds, it makes these scriptures easy to do, easy to understand, and easy to do. Okay, let's go to Malachi 3. We're going to read from verse 8. All right, Malachi 3, verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me, that you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and in offerings. Note, there's a difference between tithes and offerings. We'll get on to offerings later, but now we're dealing with tithes. For you have robbed me, even the whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing 
that there will not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Now you see, this is a law that's been instituted. And people might say, oh, well, that's part of the law of Moses. No, it was in operation before the law of Moses, and it always has been a institution of God. The tithe literally means a tenth. And once again, this is quite a contentious issue, but it doesn't have to be. Just understand that you and I have to work out our own salvation, and everybody has got a different source of income, etc. We have to work out for ourselves before God how he wants us to pay our tithe. But the basic principle is that it is the first fruits. If we look at Proverbs 3 verse 9, it speaks about bringing the first fruits that our storehouse may be blessed, our, our produce may be blessed. You see, and the whole idea is this. We take our increase, right? The first fruits of our increase. It's not what comes our way. It's how we are increased. You see, and that's where it's difficult to prescribe how everybody should pay their tithe. For example, somebody who's in retail, yes, they might have a certain amount of money coming in, but before they could get that money coming in, they had to buy the goods that they were going to sell, you see. And if they tithed on all that came in, they'd soon be out of business. You see, it's your increase, how much profit you actually make. And it's for every one of us to decide what profit we have made in the course of our daily work in a month. All right? So you see, the point is this. If you and I recognize God is the source of all our resources, and we take a tenth, roughly, of what is his, and give it back to him as a sacrifice, you see, as an offering, as a sacrifice, a sacrifice of obedience, he gives tremendous promises. Nowhere else does he say he will rebuke the devourer. Nowhere else. But he speaks of, you see, abundance, great abundance. And in a sense, it means that our work will go well, you see. If we give the first fruits, the rest is blessed. You see, as some people put it, you can do far more with 90% with God on our side than we could ever possibly achieve with 100% without God on our side. And sad to say, I think a lot of Christians get into difficulties because of this very simple act of obedience not being built into their lives. And it's a habit that we have to develop. I must say, in my life, it took a long time to learn this, and I paid the consequences. All right? But it's well worth it. And we've discovered that as we tithe very faithfully, whatever comes our way, personally, you see, it gives us the assurance that God will never let us starve, never let us go without, never put us onto the street, and he never has. Amen. So let's just leave it there. I don't want to spend too much detail on it, but it is an act of obedience, and that's the place to start. As Christians, that's the place to start. There are other ways of giving, but you see, we need to start with that. And before we've done that, we can't really do anything else. We mustn't confuse tithing with any other form of giving to the kingdom, which many people do. You see, that tithing is an act of obedience. Where does it go? 
Well, it's common sense, really. You and I are supposed to be attached to the body of Christ, wherever that attachment takes place. And obviously, where you and I are attached is where our tithe needs to go, the storehouse, so to speak. You see, many people aren't attached, and in a sense, they cannot. They cannot really properly tithe. And because of that, God cannot rebuke the devourer on their behalf. So the devourer has a wonderful time, and in a sense it becomes circular reasoning. People say, I can't belong to a church because I can't afford to tithe. But meanwhile, not being able to tithe is the reason why they can't afford to tithe, or so they think, because the devourer has literally done what the word says, devoured their substance. It happens all the time. Don't fall into that trap. You see, where you and I get fed day to day, week to week, where people go out on a limb to make sure that there's a place of worship, all right, and it's an expensive business these days, trust me, and go out on a limb, sacrificing maybe their own career to make sure the word of God is presented, like the Levites of old, who were not allowed to have their own property, did you know that? But they, because of that, had a right to the tithe of all the other tribes. You see, they didn't have the right to go and own their own properties, but they did have a right for people that belonged to the the nation of Israel. They did have a right to the tithes that came from them because their job was to propagate the nation and the temple worship. So I hope this becomes clear. It's the principle, really. It's the spirit of it that we need to grab. We're not asked to grudgingly hand over a few pence to God. No, the tithe is the first fruits, the best you have, You put it out there in faith, trusting God, and watch God do the rest. Amen. Now, this is not to be confused with, and this often happens in Christians' lives, with giving to the poor. Giving to the poor is something completely different from tithing. I need to just say that again. Giving to the poor is completely different from tithing. It's something that God very much encourages but they're not the same thing. All right? Let's just look at Proverbs 19, verse 17. Proverbs 19, verse 17. You see? Remember, when we tithe, God promises to open the windows of heaven on everything we put our hand to and to rebuke the devourer. Not so when we give to the poor. All right? As wonderful as giving to the poor is and as much as God encourages it. He has pity on the poor, that means essentially gives to the poor, lends to the Lord. All right, see the understanding? When you give to people who cannot look after themselves, God is their father, you are lending to their father to help them. All right, and God, being a just God, will pay back. All right, he will pay back what is given. So when you and I give to the poor with the right heart, and remember, the motivation for giving to the poor is compassion. Compassion. You see, have pity on the poor. When we have compassion on those who cannot look after themselves, we're actually helping God out. And God always will repay. You see? But it doesn't speak about rebuking the devourer or by opening the windows of heaven, necessarily. He will repay. What we've given will come back to us. All right? will come back to us. And, of course, might very well come back with good interest because God is a good businessman. But you see, please understand, if you and I give to the poor, we are not tithing. 
We are not tithing to the storehouse. We are not helping to maintain God's kingdom on the earth. You are just helping the poor. As wonderful as it is, and as much as God encourages it, Amen. Please note, it's something different. Amen. Let's just move on. We're running out of time. The next one is Thanksgiving offerings, right? Remember, it mentions tithe and offerings. Now, please note something. Your tithe is not your offering, and your offering is not a tithe, although both are, in a sense, an offering unto God. Let's look at the scriptures, okay? Let's go to Psalm 96, 7 to 9. This actually covers the whole understanding of an offering. Psalm 96, 7 to 9. Give to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. You see, in a sense, that offering is an act of worship. The motivation should be thanksgiving. We have a thankful heart. We're just grateful to God and we want to just bless him. When we have our services here in the house, I'm very reluctant to take up offerings in our home. But we do put out an offering basket. And the idea is this. As you and I are worshipping the Lord, we just have this urge to make that praise something sacrificial in a sense. We want to put substance to it. And that's the opportunity to put money into the offering. Realizing it's not the tithe, it's an offering. It's a thanksgiving offering. When Janet and I maybe go and listen to some other ministry somewhere else and they pass around the basket, we're happy to put in an offering, all right? It's a thanksgiving offering for this opportunity to hear the word of God through others. But we realize that's not a tithe. That's not our tithe, okay? It doesn't necessarily go to the storehouse. It's just a thanksgiving offering unto God. We might be blessed by a teaching and we send money to that ministry, whatever, as a thanksgiving offering. So please, now, let's look at 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7. There's something important. Once again, it touches on this whole business of being wise. Right? 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7. It speaks about this. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. So as you and I are generous, we can expect a wonderful return. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart. You see that? Not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. All right? And God is able to make all grace abound to you. You always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. Can you see that? Now, what's important here is to purpose in your heart. And this is really important. We mustn't be guided by emotionalism. Very important. See, sometimes we can be manipulated in church services and almost like we are manipulated into thinking, shame, if I don't give, then people are going to starve, blah, blah, blah. No, 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 no. You give as you purpose in your heart. We've learned that. You give as God directs, not as maybe your emotions and my emotions might draw us. A lot of people manipulate people's emotions and they get them to give when they're not really supposed to give. Okay, that's not a good thing. So we need to purpose in our heart, but at the same time, when we give with that attitude of thanksgiving, ready to give at the drop of a hat, that blesses God. That blesses God. It shows him that we're not holding on to our goods, but we want to bless him with what we have. 
our whole lives, as it were. All right, and the last one, which is really important to understand, and that is sowing and reaping. You see, that's giving with a purpose, to sow and to reap. All right, Luke 6, verse 38. Let's just read that. Luke 6, verse 38. We're coming to the end here, so just bear with us. Luke 6, verse 38. All right. Give, and it shall be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will he put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you give, same measure that you give, it will be measured back to you. All right. With the same measure that you give, it will be measured back to you. Now, there's a specific place for sowing with the intention of reaping. The motivation is to sow to reap, all right? And the Bible speaks of 30, 60, 100 fold. It all depends on how and to whom we sow. Sowing into good soil. Now you see, this is God's plan and it might surprise you, but you and I were never designed to survive just by our labor. Yes, we are supposed to work, but please understand, the labor in God's economy is supposed to provide seed for the sower. You see, that's supposed to be seed to sow. There's a place where you and I can survive through what we sow and what we reap. Amen. We've spoken about this before. And I can tell you that we've been led into this, Janet and I, and we live by this, actually. But we've learned something. You have to be very cautious about when and how to sow. And you see, our eyes, or ears rather, are always attentive to the Spirit of God. And very often an occasion arises where God gives us the green light to sow. And we discuss it, and we come to an agreement about how much and how to go about sowing. There are ways of sowing that actually humiliate the people to whom you are sowing. We need wisdom in these things. Be that as it may, an occasion arises where we know it's time to sow. But we sow willingly, gladly. Why? Because we know as we sow with the right heart, that is where we will reap. And we trust God always for a hundredfold return. There's no bank that can give you a hundredfold return, let me tell you, or 30%, let alone 30%, 60%, let alone 100%. You understand? So there's a place where you and I, and you see God realized that Life would get tougher and tougher. The system of this world would actually put you and I's, just average citizens, in such a bind that we have to eventually become dependent on the state. That's the whole idea behind it. And people living in this country for a start and everywhere else in the world have realized that to survive here, it's very difficult to do it on a salary. Paying for our own education which the government doesn't really provide, paying for our own medical, which the government doesn't really provide, paying for our own security, which the government doesn't provide, trying to buy food, which obviously the government doesn't provide, it becomes harder and harder. And people paying tax as well on top of it all easily can fall into difficult situations where the husband and wife are struggling just to survive. It was never God's plan that that was how we were supposed to live. And you see, this is the way out. The way out is to learn how to sow properly. 
and expect a return. All right? Many Christians get horrified when you say things like that, but that's God's word. When we purposefully give with the intention of receiving a return, and remember, what are we giving to? We are giving to God's kingdom. Always, always, always. The sign that this is God speaking is, will it benefit his kingdom, the people of his kingdom? It's not just giving to the poor. It's not a thanksgiving offering. It's a deliberate sowing into a work of God. Amen. Something to promote the kingdom of heaven and the people of God. You see, and we fully expect God to provide the return that he has promised. It's an act of faith. And God rejoices in that. Let me tell you, he rejoices in that. Why? Because as we said from the start, he delights in the prosperity of his servants. He wants us to live by this. Many men of God have come to this place where they give 90% of what comes in and they live very well, thank you very much, on just 10%. They live like lords and people get so upset about it, but that's what they do because that is what the Bible says. So I'm encouraging you and I to become specialists at dealing with cash. Amen? Understand there are certain rules, and perhaps I've just, I've just touched on a few of them. But you see, we need to be students. We need to be continually learning how God wants us to give, remembering that, A, it's his money in the first place. We are stewards. He wants us to be wise stewards. But you see, at the same time, his desire for us, always, always, is to bless us, to bless us. He wants us to live above situations, above the circumstances, and not be victims. The world system wants to make you and I victims. He wants us to get onto the treadmill and we, where we think there's no way out. I remember once I was working for the school there, and at the end of the year, very condescendingly, the headmaster came and said, well, we've decided to give you an opportunity to renew your contract. Well, I looked at the contract and the increase they gave me on the year before, which we'd hardly survived on, didn't even cover the increase that we were going to have to pay for rent on our property. So I said, thank you very much. I appreciate your wonderful offer. But after a few weeks, I said, thank you, but no thank you. I realized this was a trick of the enemy to keep me in the treadmill, as it were, and God had better things. Well, I hope you've been blessed by this teaching. Please consider it, think about it, read the scriptures. Let the Holy Spirit quicken to you where you and I are at. As I said, we grow into these things. It might be overwhelming to think, Oof, I've got to give all this money away. No, it's not overwhelming if you realize God knows where we are at. The starting point is that act of obedience. All right. From there, we move on to giving to the poor, thanksgiving offerings, and sowing and reaping. And I pray that God will bless us. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it's your desire to prosper us. You're not a mean God that delights in our struggling. It doesn't keep us humble. It keeps us frustrated, Lord. I pray that we'd be people that grow above the situation, become a light upon the hill, able to help others because of your abundance in our lives. We bless you and thank you. 
And we pray, O oh Lord, that your will be done in every situation that we face. In Yeshua's mighty name. Amen. Amen.